Welcome to Soccer 101, the show in which we delve deeper into basic aspects of soccer that seem straightforward, but oftentimes have a lot going on under the surface. This week, we're looking at World Cup preparations. Uh, the Women's World Cup kicks off this coming weekend, I do believe. Is that correct, Graham Ruffin? Let me just check uh, on the basis of our previews. So we're on E, we've done F, G and H is coming. Yes, I believe that is correct. <laughs> yep, that is yep. now how I see our calendar is through our previews and how far through we are. Yeah, I think uh, July 20th is when it kicks off, if you're listening to this. we got a little bit of time before that, uh, but we are very much in World Cup prep mode, as are many of the teams competing in the 2023 Women's World Cup. But generally speaking, when it comes to World Cups, you get teams uh, scheduling friendlies, announcing squads, finding accommodation. And it occurred to, I guess, Graham. Graham, this is your your idea, or we came up with it collaboratively. But it occurred to me, us, that we don't really know much about how teams go about deciding where they're going to train, and we don't know much about how managers go about selecting their squads and then informing the players. So this episode is meant to be a, a broader overlook at some of those topics. Let's start with the announcement of squads. Uh, Graham, what are the kind of guidelines, requirements for when teams are expected to release squads or expected to uh, make some phone calls to some very unhappy players or happy players? Yeah, so first of all, there is a lot for us to draw on at the moment because, as you mentioned, Women's World Cup just around the corner and then we had another World Cup six months ago. So this has been the most World Cup-dense periods in football (laughs) history. We can't move for World Cups at the moment. So this feels like a a good time to look into what preparations for a World Cup are like. And you're right, Taylor, for most teams, preparations for a World Cup will, will start with the announcement of a squad for the tournament. So... Some national team managers will announce a preliminary squad first, which is usually around 30 players. It can be more than that. It can be up to 50, 55 players. I love when they do that. Yeah. It's like 89 players on the provisional roster. Yeah. And there are some countries, I just don't know what the point of that is, where essentially a 55-player list is every eligible player for a a certain national team. If if you were to do that with uh, Scotland, I'm not sure we would have many more than 55 players that we could call up. But anyway, normally there's a preliminary squad first. Um, Those players might be involved in an initial training camp, not so much if you're talking 55 players, but... Mm. If you have a 30-player preliminary squad, then they might be involved in a camp, some way out for the tournament, so the manager can get a look at them all. And then closer to the tournament, a final squad will be announced. And for the Men's World Cup just there, it was 26 players, that final squad. For the Women's World Cup this summer, it's 23 players. That has been the source of some controversy, Mm -hmm. but there you go. That is the framework that FIFA have set. And FIFA set a final deadline for the 23-player squads for this Women's World Cup. The deadline was the 9th of July, so that deadline has obviously now passed. Uh, Some countries will get their rosters in a long time before that deadline, whereas others will run it pretty close to the wire. The Philippines, for example, waited until the day before to announce their squad because, as David Gass outlined in his preview, they were still trying to get some passports for some dual nationals, so they waited as long as they could. Other teams will announce their squads uh, depending on when they're released by their clubs, So England announced their final squad nice and early on May 31st. And then those players were released by their clubs two weeks later. And they all joined a camp on June 19th. The US, however, they didn't start their camp until June 26th, largely because that was when the players were released by um, largely NWSL clubs, where obviously the US is drawing the majority of its talent pool. And Vlatko announced a squad the, the week before that. So it kind of depends on what your schedule is when players are available and things like that. 
And I think also when the tournament is being played, because I think if you have it in the normal summer period, there's maybe going to be a firmer deadline of when that roster has to has to be announced further out. As you said, with the Women's World Cup, it's what, like 11 days, I think, is what my math tells me. On the men's side, not a huge difference, but I believe for Qatar, it was six days before the start yeah. of the tournament, which is a wild thing to think about. And I'm assuming that for most of the teams who waited until that point, there weren't that many, but it was probably more of a like final little checks, final little uh, follow-ups to make sure that everybody's good to go before you announce that squad. I hope it wasn't yeah. sort of a, a chaotic scramble for like, wait, what the deadline's coming yeah, up. Well, ma- I, I left it late <laughs> making calls and players being like, I'll be in Marbella at that <laughs> yeah, time <what>? of year. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the Brian Regan joke of like their head pops up seven days out. Like, Oh no, that's due today. And then you yeah. just got to figure it out on the fly, <laughs> scramble to throw names in there. Hope you got it right. I don't think it's oftentimes that chaotic, but I think that's when we see that difference in the announcements. And then I also think there are teams that want to have their own time period. I feel like if you're a bigger nation, you want it to be more of a spectacle. I think the U.S. sometimes treats it that way on both the men's and women's side. Like, I doubt that Brazil and Germany want to announce their squads at the same time. It does seem like sometimes you'll get teams staggering so that they get a little bit of media coverage and then it's on to the next team the next day. Uh, but broadly speaking, yeah, we're, we're about maybe a week to two weeks out is when you get those, those firmed up rosters, those official rosters. Uh, and then yeah. we see who is angry and who is not. And with that in <laughs> mind, Graham, what did your research tell you about how players find out or how managers let players know? So I looked into the recent trends of basically managers telling players they're in the squad being posted to social media. So US fans will have seen this with Vlatko. I know the US also did it with uh, with Greg Berhalter before the Qatar World Cup, where essentially they post that footage to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Sometimes I am skeptical, skeptical about mm-hmm. whether this is truly the first time that players are being told. I have a feeling that maybe there's an actual phone call first. And then it's a case of, okay, we have to do like a FaceTime for the social team. But nonetheless, it provides a nice peek behind the curtain of what that process is, is like. Of yeah. course, if you're Karin Diakra, you just scream, you're out, loser, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, hang, exactly. up, hang up. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> I, I also do enjoy the difference in approach of like, you know, the US, and this will largely be down to budgets and resources, but the US put together a video which included, who was in that video again? The Bidens were in that video. Oh, yeah. It was and like Lil so Wayne was in that yeah. video. And yeah, A-list celebrities basically in that video. And I can't remember who it was, but one of, I'm sure it was Joe, one of the teams he previewed. It might have been Zambia. Um, their manager basically just stood up in front of a room of journalists and read out names like the classroom scene in Mean Girls. Uh, so I do enjoy that difference in approaches. It's fascinating to hear about how it used to work. Like, I think I remember reading that Pele found out he made the Brazil squad in 1958, like on the radio. Like his name was just read out on the radio. And he was like, oh, I guess I'm going. Uh, I think times have changed a little bit. Communication is a little bit better. Uh, go ahead, Graham. I was just going to say, Brazil seemed to still do that. Is that a Brazilian thing? Maybe so I remember, is. I haven't seen it for the Women's World Cup, but I remember for the Men's World Cup, like Richarlison watching from home and all his family oh, yeah. being around him and then filming his reaction to be included in that in that squad. And he was very emotional. And the way he reacted makes me think that that wasn't a setup, that was genuine. So maybe that's a Brazilian thing where they don't actually phone the players until they until they tell the media. Maybe. And that would be cool. I feel like your first inclination is correct. That sometimes, like, even the, maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like the Vlatko one where he was talking to Trinity Rodman, that's the one I watched. And I'm pretty sure 
we get her FaceTime camera, but I'm also pretty sure there was somebody filming. And my guess would be that it's it's sort of NFL draft style of the players yeah. told like, hey, you might want to be in front of a TV at this time for this phone call. Uh, I, I feel like there is some if a camera crew shows up and you're a bubble player, I feel like you might know what's coming. I doubt they send camera crews to the players who didn't make it just to keep the air of anticipation alive. Well, that's the footage uh, we really want. It what, what, was it was it Klinsman that left out Landon Donovan from a World yes. Cup squad? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yes, I, I want to see that footage. <laughs> I mean. There, I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on that one, but Klinsman's son, like, talking trash on Twitter immediately after that, it does feel like that phone call would have been spicy. Kareem Diakra levels spicy, because you're yeah. right. She, part of the criticism, I think, from Amandine Henri was that when Amand- Henri was left off, it was just a phone call of, like, not good enough, hangs up phone. <laughs> like, it was, you can be pretty ruthless. I mean, I'm laughing, but that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think that's that's part of why those players, who even if you're being left off on a temporary basis, that can burn bridges if you don't handle it well. And I think that is an underrated skill set of a national team manager, of being able to deliver that news in a way that doesn't shatter that player but also doesn't shatter the relationship with that manager if they're still around and with the Federation, even after that manager is gone. And like uh, Ber- Greg Berhalter uh, in the lead up to this World Cup calling uh, Ricardo Pepe and, and talking it out with him. Uh, some people in Ricardo Pepe's camp were not pleased with the way that phone call went. It seems like things have been smoothed over, but I think we do get examples where coaches lay out the decision-making process, what happened, why it didn't happen, what needs to change. And I doubt players really want to hear that in the moment. I suspect that players initially just want to hear, sorry, you didn't make it. Uh, and then I can offer why, but maybe that player just wants to have some time and then you you revisit that conversation later on. I think there are varying approaches to it, but I always think that the ability to communicate with those players, especially the ones who didn't make it, is so critical in a manager showing who they are. Because I think for the players who did make it, you still want to know that that manager is is not just like, all right, I got my people. It, it makes you feel very quickly like, oh, I could be the one next time who doesn't get the favorable news and then I'm getting just sort of shafted, pushed out the door. I think it's a really difficult line to walk uh, and yeah. you have to be able to walk it. Yeah, absolutely. And that contributes to the the sense of team spirit within a group for a World Cup. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's very important how a manager communicates that. I always think of there's the the movie Miracle about the the team that did the Miracle on Ice, the Herb Brooks U.S. hockey team. And I think he has to cut a player, like one player, like right before the Olympics start. And and there's a whole thing about how you handle that, how you talk to that player, relay that information and, and just soften the blow as much as you can, but still also not be overly apologetic. There's that thing of when you apologize for something and then you keep apologizing and it sort of makes it worse because you keep repeating the negative thing over and over and over again while you apologize. So you have to walk that line. And I think it's a it's an underrated skill set, but it is part of the job. And then you get to deliver. I'm guessing you do that thing first. Then you call the players who made it so that you get to end on the positives and end on the happy, happy news. So once the squad is selected or even prior to the squad being selected, we then often have uh, friendly warm-ups uh, for the tournament. Some of those are public, some of them are send-off games and the like. Some of them are closed-doors friendlies. When you're in the host nation, when you're actually in the country, uh, or on the way to that country, you might get a few uh, sort of warm-up games. Graham, do you feel like those establish, like serve a purpose? I think sometimes teams try to like play against teams that are 
similar in style or approach yeah. to the ones they're going to play in the group stage. Oftentimes, to me, that ends up just being like, oh, we're playing Senegal. Well, then we'll schedule Nigeria. Like it's it's <laughs> it's sort of a oh, they're from the same confederation, so it must be the same. There are those moments of like, I don't I don't know if this is going to do the job that you all think it will. Yeah, I think they can be productive um, if you get the, the right opponent and mm. also like the right level of opponent as, as well, yeah. I think is quite important in terms we of what they achieve. We crushed Uzbekistan. We're good to go. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Well, I often think you, you maybe want to finish on a match like that. So you're heading into a tournament maybe having put, well, in the US's case and what they're capable of on the women's side, like 15 goals past an opponent. Maybe that's not the best. It's not the worst, excuse me, way to finish a, a friendly program. But they are generally a last opportunity to work on anything that's still to be resolved before a tournament. So for England, to look at them, um, as we mentioned in the previews, this week they have a, a choice between Alessio Russo and Rachel Daly as their number nine, and against Portugal, which was their last, I believe their last um, friendly before this tournament, they gave Russo a half and they gave Rachel Daly a half. And I don't think Serena Wiegmann actually learned anything from that friendly, but the idea was there to learn something. So it, it might be a way to learn something about the chemistry of players. It might also be a good way to build up a little bit of fitness again after a few weeks of not playing matches. It can also help build chemistry in the camp. Keep in mind that these players don't train and play with each other every single week. There'll be players there. Yes, there'll be some players that are at the same club. But in a lot of cases, when they join up for that camp, there'll be a lot of players that haven't seen other players for Mm -hmm. months. Um, So it's just good to get them on the pitch again. In my mind, a big part of these friendlies is just to get into the swing of things again. You're going to be with these people for about a month, maybe even longer if you go deep into the tournament. And friendlies are a, a, a way to ease your way in. Obviously, the big risk with playing friendlies just before a tournament is that players can pick up injuries. And I know even though the US didn't have... This was a weird quirk of the Qatar World Cup where there were no friendlies because it was slap bang in the middle of the of the of the season but i know joe seems to be uh slightly more nervous about injuries than yeah. even most national team fans and um, so i'm not sure if he's the the biggest fan of, of of friendly matches but that is the big risk right the closer you get to the tournament there's not as much recovery time for any players that maybe do pick up a, a knock amondi Nonri picked up a pretty minor calf injury last week i believe that was in training actually not in a match but nonetheless she picked up not i wouldn't say a minor calf injury i'll, I'll rephrase but not a major calf injury but because the World Cup is, you know, a week and a half away, she's not going to recover in time for it. Um, if we're counting the two matches in April that the US played against Ireland, which I know are, were not directly in, in front of the tournament, but nonetheless they were classed as tune-up games for the US ahead of the Women's World Cup, Mallory Swanson, of course, gets that bad injury in, in one of the games against Ireland. So that is that is a risk. It's a bit of a two-sided coin. Um, you can build up chemistry and fitness or you can lose a, 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 a key player to an injury. The other thing that can happen is if you get a, a series of bad results in friendlies, you can kind of stop any momentum mm-hmm. that you had from qualifying or from other friendlies. So Germany are a good example of this. They made the Euros finals last year. They sailed through qualifying after that. Then in a couple friendlies, they beat the Netherlands. They drew with Sweden. And then in their final two friendlies this week, they they scheduled i imagine the idea was scheduling matches against maybe yeah. lower cap- caliber opponents to send them into the world cup in confidence they only beat vietnam 2-1 and then they lost to zambia so yeah. all of a sudden there's now a discussion about whether germany are in bad shape so 
it, there is a risk with friendlies on the other side if you have a good build up and get a good few results you can create positivity yeah. around the team so there is a kind of risk reward situation here absolutely and, and i think a lot of that has to do with stuff that we as people on the outside cannot know uh I will forever remember Greg Berhalter talking about that 3-0 loss to Mexico early in his tenure as being like a really good game and a really valuable lesson. And at the time, I was one of many, many people who was borderline apoplectic about how how can losing 3-0 be a good result? Uh, but then seen within the context, and I still think that was a may, maybe a little tone deaf way to explain that one, but seen within the context context of we have to learn how to build out of out of the back, not just against weak CONCACAF opponents who are going to drop off and let us do that, but against teams that are going to press us and make it difficult. You have to have that sort of trial by fire. And I do think you can have that in, in tune-up games. You can have players who maybe you've maybe your starting fullback is injured, so you've got to have somebody new in there, and that fullback is doing very specific things. You've got to see who could do that the best, and, and those final tune-up games can be an opportunity just to make sure that that player knows what's expected or if you are having that position battle to see who has sort of taken in more of the instruction, who is able to execute more of what you need uh, in the moment on the fly. I think you can get really good evaluations i think they can be really valuable in that way i think oftentimes we just don't really know what's being evaluated and so if you're looking at just the surface level oh they only beat this team two to one that's not good but if they only played their starters for the first half but it was actually like 30 minutes they were actually trying it just tells a very very different story and then you can also get a gauge of where players are mentally graham you can lean out of frame for this one if you don't want to go down this road with me but from what i understand uh, in the U.S. men's preparation for the last World Cup, there were concerns about Gio Reyna and his work ethic and how hard he was trying in training. Admittedly, this was after he had had his conversation with Berhalter about what his role was going to be, which he says was extremely limited. I have long held that Greg Berhalter would probably say that he never used that phrasing and gave him very specific ideas of when he'd be playing. But to my understanding, then in training, there wasn't much effort to the level that the training staff thought maybe he was injured, which is why I think initially we got those comments about Gio Reyna being hurt. And and that to me is an example where you have a player and you're sort of seeing what they're capable of or not capable of or where they are mentally. And then you have to reevaluate based on the information you're given. I also think there are times when coaches will see a player scoring goals in training and looking confident and, and it makes them think, oh, maybe that player needs to be more involved. I look at the inclusion of Haji Wright as a prime example of that. I think you you have him scoring goals in Turkey and then he comes into camp and I think he looks electric enough or is doing enough of what's being asked in that role that he jumps a few yeah. levels, comes up in the estimation and now he's included. I think there are plenty of those types of examples on the men's and women's side as you lead into a World Cup. I think the psychological aspect is actually really important. And I go back to an interview with Paul Scholes on how he hated going away with England, not because of anything to do with the actual footballing setup, but just because the environment of being mm -hmm. at a tournament, being stuck in a hotel, that's maybe something that fans don't yeah. appreciate. These players have a lot of spare time on their hands during tournaments to think about matches, to think about how important these games are, think about how their careers can be defined by what happens in these games. And so Paul Scholes, it's kind of this myth that Paul Scholes retired from England because he was getting played on the left wing. The truth he said in this interview was that he just didn't like the environment of going away to play in major tournaments. And so I do think it's important for managers to assess 
the mental condition of players. There will be players that don't react to that situation well. There are others, I think of like Antoine Griezmann as being one of the most, the, the ultimate um, major tournament players over the last like 10, 15 years. He always turns it on in major tournaments. And so maybe if you see a player reach another level in training or whatever, that maybe that does change your thinking on how you're going to set up your team. So yeah, it's just about that. These are, these are, unusual circumstances this is not normal for a group of players to be in a situation like this and so you have to assess all aspects of it well let's keep going with that idea then with once you're there once you've made the squad once you've traveled to the country uh you are likely heading to a i think in qatar it was a hotel because it was a it's a very small country there's not a ton of space i feel like there weren't that many options but we will get on occasion, like I think Germany in the Brazil World Cup were out in this like giant, like sort of farm with luxury accommodation. And and I think some teams will go for space. Some teams want to be right in the middle of the action. I think the Brazil men's team in Qatar were at most like 17 minutes from any given stadium they could, they could play in. So you have those different approaches uh, to where you're going to end up staying. Uh, I want to put a pin in that because... Then, to your point, though, like there was the footage of the U.S. women's team getting off the plane yeah, uh, and their arrival and how much luggage they had stood out to me that they're all rocking like four gigantic suitcases, except for Naomi Gurma, who I think was like just the I think one it was Alana a small Cook, bag. Actually. Oh, Alana, Alana Cook, Cook excuse the, me. The, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Minimalist master with the yeah. single case. That's impressive. That is impressive. But then, like, you think about you're there for a month and a half and you have media obligations. You have so many things that you have to kind of prepare for. And you also want it to be a feeling of home. Yeah, you're going to pack a lot of stuff. And I think with that in mind, when we look at the accommodation of players, I remember the the England team uh, when they were sort of giving us the tour of their hotel. They had the unicorns back, the unicorn floaties. Oh, yeah. uh, But they had all of the amenities on on, on sort of on call so you could get a massage you could get a gourmet dinner uh you could go pl- play in the pool they brought in extra training equipment they brought in video game consoles because there is so much downtime that sometimes it can be good you rest up you sort of build chemistry as a team but there can also be so much downtime that you sort of start to lose your mind by all yeah. accounts if you listen to the podcast american disaster which is a good sort of oral history of the men's 98 team that collapsed pretty spectacularly Part of that was that they're staying in this like remote chateau somewhere in France where they are very isolated. And I think like Ernie Stewart ends up like talking to swans or something. It was a very strange series of events, but it can go the other way where you almost have a shining uh, scenario of you're, you're sort of stranded in this remote location. You're only around the same people constantly. You're eating the same food constantly. You don't get that feeling of home. It's a really difficult balance because it can go really well if you need the seclusion and the privacy and the comfort. But it can also go really poorly if, if that starts to feel suffocating and it sort of puts you in a negative headspace before the tournament's even begun. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to a World Cup and resources weren't an issue, like it, they aren't for you know the US Federation or England or whoever, I'd be bringing like everything with me. Like packing for that tournament, I'd be like, oh, my, my, my coffee machine? Yeah, I'm going to need yep. this. I'm going to need this with me, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I completely understand why the U.S. players had so much stuff with them. There's also just logistical stuff. I can not I can imagine, like, they train. They'll be doing double sessions some days and then playing, obviously, in a number of matches. Like, even the amount of underwear that you would have to bring mm-hmm. for that, like, seems like it would be rather a lot. Would you have a whole bag just for socks, Graham, knowing that you wear the double sock? 
yeah, well, that's that's standard for me with any holiday or vacation I mean, as a, as a whole bag of socks. But that's yes. ninety. That would be ninety. If you're there for forty five <laughs> days, that's ninety socks you're going to go through, not including soccer socks. Are you packing a full suitcase? Uh, p- potentially, yes. I, I saw <laughs> I saw a company like the other week that you can they ship your bag so you don't take it through the airport. Maybe I would be doing that with the socks. The sock bag would get would be getting shipped to Australia, and New Zealand. That'd be a big bill. For that bag, but that it would, it. my friend. Uh, I also like. I know it's not the players footing the bill for this one. Maybe they have to pay for incidentals. I don't know. I'm guessing it's the federations, and I'm I'm hoping that federations have enough money to throw at these things because all I could think about was those teams in Qatar, how expensive those hotels were as a baseline. But I'm gonna assume the amenities and the extra services are even infinitely more expensive. And so if you're there for a month and a half and you're using like the five star hotels laundry services, I'm guessing that's that's not cheap either. I feel like some of these bills were 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 pretty hefty. I can just imagine the hotel owners just rubbing their hands together, like, sure, sure, yeah. laundry services, no problem. Dining services, no problem. It will be four trillion dollars at the end. I hope the tournament went well for you. That would be a good social media feature is which of these like multi-million millionaire players are actually like tight with their wallets and oh. not actually going to spend money on room service or, or, or whatever. I would I don't enjoy know that. that would Until be. they find out that the Federation is covering it. And yeah. Like, Bring it all. Yeah. Five course <laughs> yes. taster meal and wine. Yeah, I'd we like, should probably we should probably outline the the like the process for actually sure. picking a base because um, there is there is actually a set process for this. Um, Talk for us a World through Cup. it if you would. So FIFA, what they do is they will they will present national federations with a list of training facilities first that they can choose from, and and these facilities are actually part of the bidding process. It's something that is considered as part of the the bidding process, although not so much in the case of Qatar, who. By the letter of the bidding process, it seems didn't have the usual number of facilities that FIFA <gasps> looks for. And this resulted in, yeah, what a shocker. This resulted in about two thirds of the teams, quite literally about two thirds of the teams for the 2022 World Cup training at the Aspire Academy and Doha University being the two predominant facilities. I actually remember reading either it was an article or maybe it was a broadcast feature on TV. I remember learning about the schedule for those facilities and how difficult it was proving to get every team time on the pitch, which is not something you really want when you're preparing for a World Cup is maybe having your training session at like 9pm at night because that's the only time you can get on the pitch at the Aspire Academy. But anyway, FIFA will present a list of training facilities. Um, the federation will select one, and usually they'll they'll visit that facility even a year out from the tournament, um, and they'll take into consideration where they're playing matches at the tournament and things like the quality of the pitch and the facilities and um, and things like that. And then it's up to the federation, I believe, with a little bit of collaboration from FIFA, but generally up to the federation to find the the accommodation. So federations again will will tour hotels maybe even a year out and um, hotels it's often a little bit of an arms race with hotels they will build like new facilities to lure teams i remember the 2006 world cup when the hotel that england used in baden baden the reason i remember that name as well it's easy to remember baden baden it's fun to say but it was like a big subject in the english tabloid media at the time because basically the hotel and the town became this party town during the world cup and players were out with the wives and girlfriends and so on and england's base there it was a hotel and a training facility in one so the hotel actually built a training facility 
for England to use. Now, training facility might be glorifying it a little, little bit. I imagine they built bit. them a pitch yeah. and some changing rooms and maybe some like physio rooms or whatever. But nonetheless, the the hotel built that in their in their grounds so that England didn't have to do any travelling around. Um, and as I say, it is a bit of an arms rest with the, mm-hmm. uh, the basically the aim being to find the hotel with the most stuff and the most luxuries. And I remember Belgium in the Qatar World Cup had like a hotel with a water park in it, yep. I believe. Yep. Um, like cliff jumping. It's like, I don't yeah, think you exactly. want, if you're worried about getting injured in a friendly, I don't think you want people cliff jumping <laughs> right before a World Cup starts. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Croatia had a how- beach. Did you see that one? Croatia's hotel was just like all, on a beach that was closed except for Croatia's use during the World Cup. It's a tough life these footballers live. These poor lambs who have five-star catered meals and beaches to themselves. I think that's the reason that, that Qatar, uh, Croatia had a good World Cup was they had that yeah. beach, whereas Belgium were going into game absolutely battered right. from water slides and just like little children hitting them <laughs> on splash pads. <laughs> I would watch a like Veep style TV show about the, I'm assuming legions of people who are responsible for securing these accommodations and facilities. Just because there has to be so much backroom dealing. There has to be so much frustration with federations that have a ton of money and a ton of logistical support to make these decisions really quickly. I feel like it, it would be a fascinating insight into how different federations are run and the amount of money that is or isn't available. Because uh, you do get, as you said, these decisions happening a year out. And I'm assuming there's so much stress involved and you have to coordinate with the manager and what the manager wants things to be. Then with the kind of budgeting side of things in the Federation and what they're capable of providing, it it seems like it would be a really difficult one to walk and a thing that you're not going to get a ton of praise for if you get it right. Because if you get it right, it's like, yeah, you booked a hotel. Fine, whatever. (laughs) But if you get it wrong and there's mutiny and squad infighting, then you are probably to blame or going to be blamed for booking the wrong hotel, booking the wrong facility. Even worse is like a Home Alone, is it one or two? Is it Home Alone 2 situation where Fred or Frank, Frank yes. books the hotel in Miami in Florida yes. and they turn up and it's like this dilapidated motel. I can imagine the criticism if that would happen to a national federation uh, at Man. a World Cup. Actually, I think that probably has happened a few times. Yeah. There's, been, there's been some hotels that maybe haven't lived up to expectations. I did look through the list of bases and hotels for, for this World Cup upcoming, the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, um, you can actually find a list on Wikipedia. Which, which I feels find. insane, right? It, I Like, I get it. I'm sure there's a ton of security. I'm sure part of that is the fan support. You want people to, you know, be outside with good, good game, good luck sort of things. But at the same time, it feels weird that you can know exactly where every single team yeah. is staying. Uh, they don't seem quite as luxurious as some of the accommodations in Qatar, Graham, where you had... I think like France staying in a place that the the most expensive suite was ten thousand pounds a night or something. Uh, I think a lot of the rooms in Qatar were at a slightly higher rate than some of the places I've seen uh, in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, so you can see on this Wikipedia page the U.S. are staying at Sofitel Auckland Viaduct Harbour Hotel, which yep. I went and googled. looks looks quite nice. They're one of the few and- that I found that you could not. It's one of those where you can't get the pricing up front. You have to right, sort of read okay. the whole thing about all the That's services and then book, and then yeah. they tell you the price. Versus other places, it was like. 300 New Zealand dollars a night, like yeah. right into the front. So the US are staying at a hotel that's not for us normies, is uh-huh. what I'm taking yeah. from that. I looked yeah. at England as well, their their hotel, uh, their hotel. where were they staying again? They were staying at the Crown Plaza, Terrigal Pacific, 
on the new South Wales coast, and they're training at Central Coast Stadium. So their hotel looks very nice as well. Um, so as I say, you can find a list of all these bases on Wikipedia and hotels on Wikipedia. Um, so you can have that in one tab and then you can have booking.com in another tab. You can see the prices <laughs> of them. It is, it is interesting to see who has gone. Like I think Sweden are in ones that I think at their most expensive are $200 a night, but they look very Swedish at the same time. They look like they're outfitted uh, in ikea do the rooms yeah. and does the nzcis accommodation wellington that sounds like they might be staying in a hostel <laughs> it, it's like new zealand like academy of sport and science or something it oh, felt it's like, like they're uh, like yeah, learning yeah. things as they go oh that's what it is yeah so it's like an olympic village is yeah. what they're staying at yeah so that makes that's sense that's probably not a bad thing actually that's yeah. probably quite good they look nice they look like nice like sort of like uh like two-story suites i think is is what i would i would describe them as but yeah then you have on the men's side team staying in the most ridiculous like fortress accommodations uh, and you do have some staying right in the middle of things as i talked about brazil went that route versus i think germany chose to be 100 kilometers away from doha so you will get some teams that want yeah. to be more removed so, want to be further out so i remember and i think ryan might have a story about this because ryan was at the 2014 world cup in rio i think was the city as well he was based in i remember the netherlands hotel being like this party hotel I, I didn't go to this tournament by the way i just saw this on, on tv and saw it reported about but it was like this party hotel right on Copa, copacabana beach and i yeah. think they had like a rooftop bar and players would be seen in the rooftop bar so yeah there's there's two different approaches either you have the hotel right in the middle of things or you have the the remote uh compound what, what would you if you were a manager of a national team graham what sort of style would you want to go with because i think i would probably go more remote but with a ton of like stuff players can do i don't think yeah. i would do a ton of activities either i don't think one day we're going here the next day we're going here i'm sort of a believer that's my vacation philosophy my vacation is go to a place and then don't have to do much don't schedule a ton so i think i'm going slightly more remote with a lot of amenities and then it's uh it's sort of hang out do what you want to do play in the pool, play some video games, relax until we're playing games. Yeah, I think uh, there's a happy medium, right? Where you don't yeah. want to be in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing and you feel also completely that. cut off from mm -hmm. uh, civilization. But equally, you don't want to be in the, the party hotel on Copacabana Beach. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't the best selection for the Netherlands. Probably not. We're, okay, let me see this. A random one. Let's say in the very likely event that Scotland were to host a World Cup. Okay. Like, would you say, would you want your uh, team, so you're managing, you're managing the United States now, Graham. Congratulations. Big step up. Um, would you want to be in Glasgow? Would you want to be Edinburgh? Would you go no. out somewhere far away? Where would you go? So the sad thing is I've already considered this question. <laughs> I know exactly my answer. Um, so I'd say in St. Have. Andrews. What, is this just and a thing that you do? Do you just like contemplate these things as you so walk right. around the town? We stayed, um, my wife and I, we, we, we've stayed a couple times at, and, and this is going to paint us in uh, a certain light, but we've stayed at the Fairmont St. Andrews a couple times, right? And we've only stayed there one or two nights. Fairmont, like, a, it sounds quite fancy. a nice, yeah, it's quite mm -hmm. a fancy, like, brand of hotel. And whenever I'm there, I'm like, man, this would be a good training base for a, for a major tournament. And the thing about St. Andrews is, like, it's kind of out of the way, but St. Andrews has got, like, some nice cafes. There's a beach. You can, like, walk around the golf courses and, is, and yeah. stuff like that. So, yeah, that's what St. Andrews, and I'd, I'd stay at the Fairmont in St. Andrews. That would be my base. Oh, yeah, that does seem to be a, another thing that teams look for, are sort of leisure sport activities. So sometimes that's volleyball. Sometimes it's golf. Sometimes it's different 
like swimming activities. I saw England had a bunch of goals around their pool, so I'm guessing you could play polo or uh, maybe polo can be kind of brutal or not polo, water polo, which I guess can be kind of brutal. So maybe they were just doing more fun activities. But I do think also having like leisure sport is part of that because I think you want players engaged and entertained, but I think you also don't want to have to be corralling them everywhere and having a ton of meetings and a ton of be here exactly at nine because by my understanding, footballers like early 20 somethings, not great about punctuality unless they're being forced to. So maybe you want to have as few of those as possible with that in mind. Then what did you find about who goes to these tournaments? Cause obviously you got the players, you've got the coach, you've got their assistants, but who else yep. is likely to be in that traveling delegation? So obviously it depends a little bit on the national team and the money that their federation have to, to spend on a World Cup campaign. But I found something from, and this was the only official documentation that I could find, but it was from the, the 2018 Men's World Cup. And that said that coaching staff numbers are limited to 12. Now this was slightly confusing because on top of this, you can have a further 12 members of staff. So I guess within the Within the national team setup, there are people whose job titles are coaches, and then maybe people who are like assistants or something—you know, assistants to the regional manager. Uh, so it was a little bit—it was a little bit blurry in terms of how many coaches and and how my, how many people can be brought to an, a, a tournament as part of the national team setup. But then um, you have basically no restrictions on the number of people that a federation can bring. They just will be restricted in terms of being in and around the dressing room. I don't believe there's any restrictions in terms of like training facilities. But yeah, in terms of like access, you, you couldn't have like 100 people milling around a World Cup stadium. They do, they do restrict that to a certain number of, of, of staff numbers. I couldn't find any official numbers for this Women's World Cup, but I'd imagine it would be probably along similar lines. Do you think you're getting like security personnel as part of that? Or do you feel like that's more of a host facility, yeah. host nation thing? My understanding, and I, I'm, I don't really have much research on this, mm -hmm. but my understanding of that would be that that's something that the host nation would provide as part of their like hosting duties as the security would be provided by them. I just don't know, like, do you have to bring your own lifeguard if the pool doesn't have a lifeguard? Is there someone there monitoring the situation at all times? Well, you bring a 24th player if there is, if the hotel doesn't provide a lifeguard. And then that's, they're the lifeguard. That's how you do it. Yeah. Exactly. Bad news, you're not going to be playing. Good news, you will be at the pool. So you get that. You do not get any per diem. I'm sorry. Um, what about the players themselves, Graham? Uh, like, so we, we talked about the, the packing habits of the U.S. women's national team, but that is pretty, uh, par for the course, I think, when it comes to teams going to a World Cup, you want those comforts. You want the things you're going to need, obviously. I think the things that are unique to you. I don't know how much you have to bring equipment side. I'm going to assume yeah. that there's you pack a bag of all of your gear and then the Federation brings that uh, as well as the sort of standardized training gear that you're going to get before every single session, every single game and that sort of thing. That's all separate. Individually, I'm guessing you will bring sort of whatever makes you feel most at home most quickly or m makes you feel most comfortable. And that could be clothing, that could be personal items, that could be video games or books or whatever you want to go with. It does seem like it's a wide variety of stuff, but it's very individual based on what the yeah. players need to keep their sanity, basically. So GQ do these videos that I would help love, me out a lot yeah. with this. Mm -hmm. So GQ do these videos. It's like 10 essentials, um, mm -hmm. and and it's usually with celebrities. I'm kind of obsessed with them some, somewhat. I've actually kind of 
got some brands that I now like from those videos. But before Pusha T yeah. taught me about the merits of Kiehl's as a, there as, we go. As a body lotion. There you go. So you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, they sit at the desk yeah. and they... Right, so mm-hmm. before the, the Men's World Cup there in Qatar... Uh, GQ did a whole series of those videos with players. Um, I watched a couple of them. One was one was, was with Jamal Musiala, um, Germany player, Bayern Munich player. And so I actually took a lot from those videos. So there are really boring things, like as I mentioned earlier, things like underwear, um, things, a, a lot of like sleeping aids, like a lot of mm-hmm. like a special kind of pillow or like special kind of pajamas or stuff like feels, that. A lot that feels of, a very lot, German to me. <laughs> yeah. A lot of like toiletries and, and you know, st- kind of thing that you would expect. But also you mentioned games consoles, Taylor, mm-hmm. earlier, earlier on. Not so much with the Women's World Cup so far, I have to say, with uh, when I've seen videos of players arriving. But I remember for the Men's World Cup, like people will know what I'm talking about if they've seen them. There's It's almost like a little suitcase on wheels and a big handle comes out the top of it. And I've learned through these videos that is a games console case. And a lot of players will bring their, their full Xbox, their PlayStation, all the games, different controllers, headsets, everything like that. They'll bring them with them. Um, I, I imagine the Federation will provide some stuff yeah. like that anyway. But I think players, maybe this is like a Gen Z thing. I think Gen Zers are like very precious about their games consoles and they want like their games consoles with their saved games and their profiles and everything. So yeah, I see players all the time, not just for major tournaments, but players going away to like Champions League games and things like that. They all bring their little games console, uh, games console suitcase. So yeah, I think yeah. that's included. To the extent that I find it really interesting how many individuals bring stuff versus when you see teams that either have like a centralized facility for that or you'll see like six dudes in a room playing Call of Duty or FIFA, whatever it may be. I I much prefer that than the player kind of sitting alone with their headset on. I think you got to have your alone time, but I also do think part of... That experience is sort of bonding people together, getting people together. Like, I I know maybe it makes me sound a thousand years old. It probably does. Like, I would bring a set of of dominoes, man. I feel like dominoes is the best game to play for like six people. If you got to get everybody involved, you can talk trash, you can get really into it. It's impossible not to get into a game of dominoes. So I think even that type of thing, anything that is going to pull people together and... Uh, yeah yeah and, and things i think dominoes as well can last like seven hours if you want it to i'm guessing darts can take you can take your yeah. time with but i think anything that can be slightly competitive not overly competitive and takes a long time is going to appeal so i know that gareth southgate has made a daily game of darts against the media a, a mm. part of like england's major tournament um routine so like every day there will be a player put up to speak to the media that's part of like the the media responsibilities and then i think they like move through a media rota so every day it's like a new member of the media to play the player at darts i quite like that and actually like it's a very small thing but if we're talking about specifically with england as we've covered many times on on the podcast over the years england's relationship with its own media hasn't really been that healthy but actually just little things like that i think creates a sense of not just among the players but yeah. like camaraderie with camaraderie with with it within the media core mm-hmm. as well so like little things like that are important i think agreed i i think also i'll pause to say i love the show deadwood people are learning a lot about us on an individual level uh today and a thing that I find so interesting about that time period is that if you're living in rough times with an uncertain future, any little bit of joy, any little bit of distraction is going to be so appreciated. So there's like a, 
a major plot point in one episode is a guy buying a bicycle and can he ride the bicycle like around the entire settlement and the entire town turns out for that. And I think about something like that darts game as if you are, if your life is like, wake up, eat breakfast, go to a team meeting, train, come back, uh, like get mandated rest. You're at another team meeting. You're at a team. It just, it feels very scheduled. And it also, I feel like could very quickly just become same in same out, especially if you are in, a hotel like in Qatar, I think hotels are designed because of the climate, because of the environment. They're designed to have as many distractions indoors, which is great if you want to be entertained indoors. But if you are living inside for a month and a half, it gets real claustrophobic really quickly. And so anything like that darts game, I feel like can become a, oh, today it's Matt Turner playing the media. I know you're talking about England, but uh, like, uh, fine, it's it's uh, Jordan Pickford playing the media. Like, let's go, like, we're going to go talk trash on his side. And like, I could see that becoming a thing that people get into, both the media and the players. And I think useful distractions that are positive in terms of building morale are going to be a very smart thing. So any sort of thing you can bring that I think facilitates that is a smart thing to include in your luggage. Less so 12 different game consoles for you to play by yourself in your room and not talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah, I think having having um, the communal moments is really important. Yep. Just looking ahead to the next Men's World Cup in 2026, which, which as we all know, will be hosted by three countries mm-hmm. and over a huge geographical area... I do kind of wonder if with the expanded World Cup as well on the men's side, whether we'll kind of lose the whole training base idea just because I can't imagine teams will have a single base for the 2026 World Cup because yeah. how, you know, how how do you select where to stay because you'll be playing a game in, you know, on the West Coast for one game, then you might be playing in Mexico, then you're playing in New York. Like, it's just going to be impossible. And so I think it will be more of just a normal travel schedule of hotel to hotel to hotel and finding training facilities in those in those um in those cities that they're staying which is actually a bit of a shame because i kind of think i've never been to a world cup training base but just as a fan observing from the outside i kind of think the training base um the way the reporting is around training bases feels very unique to major tournaments and world cups you don't really get that for anything else in soccer and so i'll kind of miss that where you know when i tune into sky sports news during a world cup and i imagine this will be the case for the women's world cup as well there'll be a reporter at the germany camp and that's their job they'll they'll be staying there for the whole time there'll be a reporter at the england camp there'll be a reporter at the italy camp you know and and so you kind of get that inside information from people who are embedded in that environment and i do wonder for future world cups whether that will change i i think it's going to be disruptive i really do uh when my wife and i were living in northern iraq and kurdistan we moved i think like 14 times in four months or thereabouts and like because we just like we're bouncing around hotels it it's stressful in like not having a permanent location but also just from a like logistics level and a personal level for me i'm sure these like these players are going to have staff and whatever but like you got to pack everything up you got to do the hotel sweep you got to make sure and like so you're never really unpacking because you know that very quickly you're moving to the next place and so it makes it that much harder to feel settled and to feel balanced and i think that's part of having those set training facilities and those sort of training compounds is is at the very least you've got a home for a month or however long you're in this tournament and you can unpack and get comfortable and get used to the environs if you are to your point playing a game in toronto and then a game in mexico city and then a game in la maybe you'll enjoy the change and and you'll get sort of 
uh, a thrill out of such di- different locations. But I also think they will probably be a, if you're bringing four giant suitcases, that's four giant suitcases you got to lug around from place to place. I think it's it will take more of a toll than I'd even considered before we started recording this episode. It's a really interesting point. I think how spread out that's going to be uh, with how many teams are going to be involved, it's going to be a different animal entirely. Yeah. Uh, but we got some time to prepare for it. I'm sure they have... People out there right now, some national teams hunting for locations and facilities to use to make everything work out just fine. Yeah, they're all, they're already on the uh, on the Hilton website, national federations. <laughs> they're already favoriting hotels for that tournament. Uh, any other areas we should talk about? Maybe what training looks like uh, before and then during the World Cup? Because that is one that seems to vary pretty widely uh, in my understanding. Yeah, so I found an article from a former England coach who I'm scrambling here in my notes to find his name. I don't have his notes down and his name down in my notes, which isn't ideal. But it was someone that it, it wasn't someone, excuse me, that I'd heard of. But this person Sven had been Gorn at Erickson. it wasn't Sven. No, it wasn't Sven. It wasn't Fabio. It wasn't any of of, of those names. But this person had been at a World Cup in the past, and he outlined what training is like before a tournament. So he said initially when the players are meeting up at a, at a tournament. Um, I presume this is actually at the tournament itself and not the kind of pre-tournament training camp where I think actually players are put through their paces a little bit. But once you actually get to the tournament, there's a lot of movement, training and flexibility and some very light ball work. He said that even once the tournament kicks off, it's not hugely strenuous because most of the time it's a bit recovery and then sort of tactical drills and and, and match planning um, in terms of strategy and then maybe ball work in groups of five or or or, or 11 if you're preparing a, a team specifically for a match um, so it seems like training during these tournaments is different to training at club level most of the time because obviously the workload in terms of the matches is so high you have you have matches every what like four or five days in a major tournament um, so you don't really want to be driving players into the ground in terms of what you're giving them on, on the training pitch. You're basically trying to keep players ticking over in the meantime. You don't want to put too much on, too much on them. Whew, man, it's a lot. It's a lot that goes into these. And, and I think a, a sort of elephant in the room that we haven't really discussed is just how important money, money and funding and financing is to make all of this happen. And I found myself thinking about that when it comes to this Women's World Cup, where Joe talked about this with Jamaica and like crowdfunding having to happen to make sure that they have the necessary resources. But Canada, we've talked about them and not having funding and how they just don't have nearly as much staff, nearly as much sort of substance to their team. They don't have uh, the men's team, I think, in preparation for the Nations League, like the the snacks and and drinks after training was like very, very limited, which is, you know, first world problems and the like. But at the same time, when you have one team that has all of the science and training and everything else yeah. going into that team, I mean, much as we want Rocky Four to be the case and just like lift weights with logs and run up a snowy mountain and you'll be <laughs> fine and good to go, there is going to be an immediate competitive advantage. And when you have teams staying in luxury accommodation where every single thing is thought of and you are fully pampered and you're taken to training and all your stuff is laid out and you don't have to do anything and then you do your training and then you have all these like nice drinks waiting for you and protein drinks and then you take a bus back in an air-conditioned way in a convoy like it's just it's going to make a huge difference in how prepared you can be and that is a thing that I keep thinking about in in relation in relation to smaller nations competing at the World Cup but then especially at this Women's World Cup 
how different the amount of money and available staff and everything else is just from one team to the, yeah. the next. It's it's just a thing that can't be forgotten, but oftentimes I think is easy to overlook. We're talking about elite athletic performance here. So when Taylor, you say it's first world problems, in a sense, this whole thing is yeah. first world problem. True, true. Um, it's sport, but within that you have marginal gains which at this level makes all the makes all the difference so you're right there are the in the women's game unfortunately there's still a lot of developing nations and developing national federations that just can they can't match in any way the resources of the money that the US federation or the FA or whoever have and so you just hope that there has been the kind of safety net or support from FIFA and maybe governments and other organizations to make up some of that difference because we want to see these teams, we want to see outcomes and results on the basis of their talent and their quality rather than what hotel they're staying in. Yeah. That's, that's what we want. So should we have this just a standardized thing? Should we go to the, uh, the MLS is back bubble. Should everyone stay in the same facility and train in the same facility and get the exact same stuff? And then we see how, how everybody stacks up. See, the thing is, I'm such a nerd about like Disney theme parks that I do wonder, even within the MLS bubble, yeah. what which teams yeah. got the good mm-hmm. Disney resorts? Like, which team got yeah. the yacht club and which I mean, team yeah. got like Pop Century? <laughs> and even within that, like, which team gets the ocean view? Which team is looking at a parking lot? Like, yeah. I think, I think it's again, first world problems, but there is like, I, I could absolutely see a player who's coming in like sort of annoyed and then they get the parking lot view and the player that they like is competing for the same spot that they think they're better than get, they get the ocean view. Okay. I see how yeah. it is. I see like, yeah, I, I can just see that being a tiny little thing that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger to, to the point where you get a fist fight in training over like, I was supposed to have the nice view of the beach. Yeah. At, at MLS is back. It was, I want in the Moana room. No, <laughs> exactly. I wanted the Nemo room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I'd go to the Moana room if I'm choosing between those two. <laughs> I, I feel like Mo- Moana is better. One of them is less likely to have uh, Ellen involved. Moana's so go got Moana. uh, better songs. So there we go. Yes, and a better crab, uh, lest we forget, uh, even though Joe Lowry will never agree on that one. <laughs> uh, Graham, a- as always with 101, we've gone deep, we've gone long, but we've talked about a lot of different things. I have enjoyed this one. I do think maybe as part of our like bonus Patreon video, we should all do our 10 things we can't live without video of like the 10 things that we would pack or did pack maybe when we went to New York. So here's the thing. Uh, I've already filmed mine and it's in the can waiting. <laughs> so, no way, really? Yeah. So I'm in London this weekend. So I planned my Patreon videos. I'm, so I'm, in, I'm in London this weekend. And so I'm going to do a walk around of like West yeah. Ham Stadium and things. But then the week after, yeah, I'm going to put out the, the 10 Essentials video. So there we go. Ooh. Is there food? Of sorts. Iron Brew? (laughs) Don't spoil anything, Taylor. Jeez. (laughs) I just want to see how many things I can guess based on the time spent together. There was something that you brought that was like very unique to you that I cannot remember anymore. Ooh. I can't think what that would be. Was it a brat? No, you didn't have a comb. It, it was like it was like some some random thing that I was like, oh, that seems to be a thing that Graham rolls with. But I could be wrong. Uh, I look forward to that. I'm assuming socks will be heavily featured and maybe Iron <laughs> Brew as well. Uh, but Graham Ruthven, thank you for coming up with the idea for this episode and for doing a ton of the research. Uh, very much enjoyed uh, getting to sit back and talk about the 10 things that we would bring wherever we went. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. You're doing, a, doing yourself a disservice there because I think it was a collaborative effort in coming up for, with this idea. I think I, 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 I mentioned training bases yeah. and then you were you broadened it to 
prep, which was a better idea. So, so credit here's, yourself. Here's more insight into me. I thought it was like a, a collaborative effort, but I feel like I'd rather go with it was your idea than be like, we both came up with this together and have you think like, well, I, I kind of, I kind <laughs> of suggested it. So yes, collaborative effort, very much enjoyable. Thank you again, Graham. Thank you, listeners, for continuing to support Soccer 101 and the Total Soccer Show. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.